Lord God, Heavenly Father, great is your faithfulness. And we look to you and to your word, clinging preciously to everything that you have given to us in Christ Jesus. From your word this morning, build us up in our faith so that we may ever, day in and day out, proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a lot of marathons throughout the world, that 26.2-mile run, which is certainly a run of endurance. Obviously, one of the most famous ones is the Boston Marathon, but there are over 1,100 marathons throughout the world. That's a lot of running. That's a lot of endurance. But there's also even more, something called an ultra-marathon. For example, in Australia, there's an ultramarathon called, uh, that's 544 miles long. And in 1983, this guy named Albert Ernest Clifford Young, a 61-old sheep uh, farmer in Australia, ran that race. He showed up to complete in overalls and work boots. He left his dentures behind because he claimed they rattled when he ran. And he ran at this very slow, loping pace, which became known as the Young Shuffle. Now, by the end of the first day, he was very, very far behind all the other runners. But the runners would stop and sleep for six hours, but he kept running. He finished that race 10 hours ahead of everybody else. That's endurance, isn't it? That is endurance. As a matter of fact, now some runners have taken on his technique because it is more efficient. They don't sleep, but they have this slow, loping, young shuffle, they call it, as they would run. Now, I have never run a marathon and I never will run a marathon, especially after back surgery. Before back surgery, the longest I ran was maybe about three miles, but I actually enjoyed it. After back surgery, well, that was cut short. But though I would never run a marathon physically, I find that I am running a marathon. And it is a marathon of faith. It is a marathon of faith. And it is a marathon that calls for endurance. You see, as Christians, we are called to endure, to remain steadfast in our faith. And it is no surprise, then, that we find running the race as one of the main metaphors in Scripture about the Christian faith. Paul in 2 Timothy writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You and I are called for patient endurance throughout our Christian walk, our Christian race. So this morning we're going to learn from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his letter to the city of Philadelphia. 
a city of patient endurance, a church of patient endurance. So let us learn from our Lord. As we start again, we have the image of Jesus. And as a reminder, we do have sermon notes. These are going to be helpful in this particular uh, message this morning. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens the door and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, as before, I've given a little bit of background regarding the city uh, for each of the letters. It helps a little bit with the context. I'm going to do that here, even though it doesn't help a lot with the context, just because we've kind of established that pattern. There's not much known about the city of Philadelphia. There really isn't. It's not as ancient as any of the other cities within the uh, seven churches, the seven cities. It was founded in about 189 BC, and it was on one of the major highways. It's had a number of different names, but the founding name you would know is Philadelphia, which means the city of brotherly love. Do you know why it has that name? It's because a king named it for his brother whom he loved. That's why it is named Philadelphia. Phileo means love. Adelphos means brother. So it was named in honor of a brother. It also had another name. Uh, uh, one of the names was also called Little Athens because it had a lot of magnificent temples and all of those columns. So sometimes it was named or called Little Athens. That'll actually come into play a little bit later in the message. But here's what we really know about the city because it's nowhere mentioned other than in Revelation. We know that the church the believers in the city were under persecution. They were most likely a small church. They had little wealth. And like the church in Smyrna, which received no rebuke, but only encouragement, this is the only other church mentioned in the seven letters, the seven churches, that only receives encouragement. There is no rebuke for this particular church. So Jesus starts off actually with words of encouragement. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no, one's will op and no one will open. The first thing we find out is Jesus speaks of who he is, his very nature. He is the Holy One, the true one. Notice it doesn't say a holy one, or one of the holy ones. It uses the word the, the holy one, the true one. And in the New Testament, this is the, there are only two places where holy and true are used to describe God. One is in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, and the other is with Jesus himself, the holy one, the true one. So again, he is stating his deity right up front. And what does holy mean, by the way? Holy means separated, set apart, pure, unblemished. Do you remember from, now I'm going to stretch your memory, we actually started off with chapter 4 and 5, we did a glimpse of heaven, and the creatures were around the throne and they were singing this song. And what did they sing to the Lord God? Holy, 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 right? Three times holy. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Here Jesus says he's the holy one. And he also says he's the true one. What does true mean? Well, true means that it is genuine. That is the opposite of fake. Remember all the false idol worships, the pagan temples, all of those things that were occurring? He says, no, I am the true one. So these are great words of encouragement for this church. He is the holy one and the true one. And he also then says, he gives them his authority. He, he says he has the key of David. This is a, mess, a reference to a messianic lineage. Remember, mess, messianic simply means the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. It actually is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 22. It says, I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. It means that Jesus has the full rule, the full authority to either shut or open something. What he says is final. Remember what he told in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He has the full word and the full authority. Look, if you're under persecution, I know, I know we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And I love that song. Don't get me wrong. I love that song. But when you're under persecution, when people are maligning you and slandering you, you don't want just a friend. You want someone who is sovereign over all, in whose promises they are true. And you can depend on him no matter what. This is the encouragement that Jesus is giving right up front to this church in Philadelphia. He is also says this door, that there's a reference to the door that no one can open or shut this door. It says that this door then, I would, I would encourage you to think of this door as the kingdom to heaven. Going back again to chapter 4 from Revelation, what did Jesus show John, he said, behold, the door, right? John wrote this, and after this I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven. So when Jesus says he opens a door, it is a door into the kingdom of heaven. And who is that door, though? It is Christ himself, is it not? He himself is the door. Remember from Gospel of John, chapter 10, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So this is the encouragement. He says, look, I'm the door, and I open and I shut to the kingdom of of heaven. The encouragement that Jesus gives to the church and to you and me here this very day is that he has the final say for salvation, for entering into his presence. So now let's continue on. What he say, sees, and he sees the good. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set 
before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Now this, this is wonderful encouragement to this church. He said, look, look, this church is little. He, he calls it, you have little power, right? It was probably a small church. They had no wealth. They had no political clout. They didn't have the ability to change the cultures of the laws. But what did he commend them for? The greatest compliment he commend them for, he says this, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is the greatest compliment, the greatest encouragement, the greatest strengthening. He tells this church, you've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. Look, Jesus is not looking to the size of the church, its money or political power. He is looking for one thing, and he's looking for faithfulness unto him to keep his word and to keep his name. And he says, I have a door that I've opened for you, that no one can shut. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, in our culture, we have started to think about God opens door. When one door shot, shuts, God opens another door, right? That's a very common saying that we have. But unfortunately, in our culture, we have downgraded what that actually means into, oh, I'm going to get another opportunity for a different job or some sort of circumstance in my life. But the actual biblical understanding of opening a door is not that I get a better circumstance. It's that the gospel is being shared. You see, when God opens a door, he opens the door so that people enter into his presence. That's the biblical understanding of a door being opened. Acts chapter 14, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. That's the church in Philadelphia. Look, there are a lot of different adversaries, but Jesus has specifically told that church, the church that has been faithful unto his name, I have opened a door for you to continue to proclaim the gospel, the good news of salvation. I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. I have the key, and I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. See, we should be praying that a door is open for this church to proclaim the good news. That's what we should be praying for. Let's continue on with our lesson here. He says, Behold, I will make one of those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Just as the Jews in Jesus' day 
basically rejected much of the old covenant and thus were not Jews. And they crucified him and thus they were doing Satan's work. Jesus says, the Jews here are not of the covenant. They are doing the work of Satan. And what they are doing is they are trying to undermine as much as they can and destroy this church in Philadelphia. But what did Jesus say to Peter and the disciples? He said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he says, look, I know that these people are against you fully and are doing anything they can to slander and malign you. But in the end, they will know that I have loved you. They will bow down knowing that I am Lord and Savior and that you have kept your faith in me. See, this isn't a commandment here for us to go to Jews, or I'm going to expand this out, non-believers, and somehow force them down to lick our boots, so to speak, right? That humility, and there's an Old Testament reference going to that. This is, no, this is about standing firm in the faith and knowing at the end, they know Jesus is Lord and Savior and that he loved us. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus says the Jews and unrepentant non-believers will one day honor Jesus' faithful followers and acknowledge the true love of Christ Jesus to them. Okay, now we're going to go on in our lesson. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I mentioned this uh, either last week or the week before. Patient endurance is one of the main themes running throughout all of these letters. We find that at the end of each letter, he who conquers, right? He who remains steadfast in the faith throughout will receive the crown of life. Patient endurance. I want to actually spend a little bit of time because it's specifically called out to this city here. I want to spend a little bit of time. What does patient endurance mean? So patient endurance first is a hallmark of a Christian profession. Going back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, I referenced that earlier on. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of witnesses, what's that referring to? If you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, the writer spends time after time after time listing all of these great people of faith, these people who has persevered no matter what in their faith. So there's Noah, there's Moses, there's David, there's Abraham. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. This is the great cloud of witnesses. I've also mentioned some of the cloud of witnesses we have this very day. I have kept this shirt up here, right? 
this church that says this, this shirt is illegal. And it's illegal in all of these different countries throughout the world. And I gave you some examples of people who are persevering in the faith this very day. And we pray each week for our, our brothers and sisters who are being martyred. It's true. These are the great cloud of witnesses that we have that will stand firm no matter what. You see, perseverance in faith is a hallmark of a true Christian profession. Christian endurance originates with God. Look, the people that I've been talking about, the people, all of these witnesses, myself, none of us can endure in our faith without God first. Paul in chapter in Romans chapter 15 verse 5 he says may the god of endurance and encouragement grant you to live with such harmony with one another he calls god god of encourage uh, of endurance and encouragement 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we have experienced in asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Jesus, the Holy One, the true one, the one who holds the key of David, who opens a door that no one can shut. We look to him first because from him comes all endurance. Christian endurance involves standing firm. Last winter, we did a whole series on standing firm. The, the picture is still on the easel out there. Standing firm, living a victorious life. To be able to stand firm and not deny the name of Jesus. This really struck home with me last night watching the movie God's Not Dead. Because she was in tr on trial for proclaiming the name of Jesus. If you were there and you watched the movie, you know this is so true. And people, even her own lawyer, asked her to deny his name. And she says, no, I can't. I can't. To be able to stand fast. And how many of you would feel uncomfortable wearing this out in public? This shirt proclaiming Christ out in public, in the square, in the public arena. To be able to stand firm no matter what. That's also a hallmark of patient endurance. So, what does... I'm going to give you the 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There, my beloved, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what are the results of patient endurance? The first result is salvation. Look, read the last part of each of the letters to the churches, and there is talking about salvation about being with Christ Jesus in heaven. So you have the crown, 
the righteous crown that is worn. You have the white robes that are washed in the blood of lamb, the tree of life. Again and again and again, different ways are being talked about salvation. This is the result of patient endurance is eternal life with Christ Jesus in heaven. But while we are on earth here, it also gives us spiritual fruit. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, starting in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. How many of you rejoice in your suffering? <laughs> Not many of us, right? But Paul says, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One of the fruits, the spiritual fruits of endurance is character and hope. The people that I have talked about throughout this series who are steadfast and firm have gone through trial and suffering. And finally, one of the results is also protection. This is from our reading today. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world and to try those who dwell on the earth. There's been some difference in commentary on this particular one. Is this time of trial regarding the tribulation or is it the other simple trials that we will have throughout our lives? I kind of go back and forth on this particular one. It could be the tribulation coming. But let's take it in the broader sense that all the suffering that will happen in this world, and there's a lot of suffering, right, in this world, that we, we, we will be able to withstand it. It doesn't mean that we are not going to go through difficult times or that we will not experience physical death. But I think the promise here is the protection for spiritual life and life everlasting. Let's go with the promises now. The one who conquers, right? There it is again. The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Remember, I talked about earlier on in Philadelphia, they had all the columns. And in ancient Rome, it was often, they would often inscribe names on these particular pillars. But are we talking about, do we want to take this in a literal manner? In essence, will their names be somehow inscribed on pillars in God's temple? And I don't think we take this in a literal manner. Because look, if I say you're a pillar of the community, does that mean you're made out of stone? No, we don't take it that way. When we talk about a cloud of witnesses, we're not talking about a cloud of witnesses, are we? When we talk about a pillar, it is somebody who is foundational, who is strong for the community. Here we are talking about somebody who is strong in their faith. I like how Warren Wearsby put it this way. God's pillars are not made out of stone because there's no, uh, because there's no stone in the temple in the heavenly city. His pillars are faithful people who bear his name for glory. And I like that last part. His pillars are faithful people who bear his name for glory. And when you look at the promise that Jesus gives, bearing his name is very important. 
It says this, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Names mentioned three times there, right? So we want to look, what does this mean? I think one thing we can say is the name of God written on you tells to whom you belong. The name of God tells, tells you to whom you belong that you are a child of God. The city of God tells you where you belong. You belong in his heavenly kingdom. And finally, the name of Christ tells why you belong. And you belong there because the blood of the Lamb, that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ. So he tells this city, this is the promise you have. And I'm going to give you the name of God, the city of God, and my name. I am sealing you, and no one, no one can shut that door. I came across an interesting thing from uh, author Jay Stowell in his book, Fan the Flame. He said, the Greeks had a race in their Olympic Games that was unique. The winner was not the runner who finished first, It was the runner who finished with his torch still lit. He said, I want to run all the way with my flame of my torch still lit for him. So, the question this morning is actually very simple. Will you endure and remain steadfast in your faith in Christ Jesus? No matter what. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. 